morning, uh, this morning we are going to continue. Remember, we're in a little series here trying to get us settled into our, our new digs here and also recognizing there's a lot of folks that are kind of visiting and coming to be a part of the church that are sort of getting used to, you know, who, who is Lakeview Christian Center and what's this church about? And I thought it was very important that what we did initially would give you an opportunity to not only hear what we believe, but to hear the heart of the folks who lead the church. And so you've heard from the rest of the pastors. Um, you know, the Bible says this, and this is a topic for another message, but the Bible says that leaders keep watch over your soul. That's what the Bible says. And that's very informing because, you know, I'm not sure that we see the value and the need for our souls to be carefully watched over. You know, we, we carefully watch over a number of things. We get security systems for our homes. Uh, we make sure that our bank accounts are a certain way and we visit them online and we check the balance and we're guarding all kinds of things. But are we carefully guarding our own soul? Now, we're called to do that for ourselves, but then the Bible says that God has called others to do that in your life as well. And so it's always an important thing for you to look and see. Am I welcoming the protection that God has ordained into my soul? And the preaching of the word of God would be a primary means through which God protects our soul. The Bible says, receive the word implanted, which is able to transform your soul. So when we have this segment of the service... You know, it's just not the next thing in the program. Uh, all that we do is important. But, you know, when we gather on a weekly basis, there's something supernatural in the preaching of the Word of God that God has ordained. It, it's not about whether the, the most dynamic person is speaking. It, it's not about whether the delivery of this guy is going to be funny enough or interesting enough. It's about whether or not God accompanies the presentation of His Word. And He does. He promises that. And when he does that in a mysterious way, in a way that we don't understand, his word doesn't just travel into our ears, it travels into our soul, and it affects our soul. So this morning, God, through the means of a human being, is going to watch over our souls. And so every, you know, every week as I'm listening to the word being preached, or as I'm having the privilege to study through a message, I'm looking for my own soul's issues in these words. I'm listening as Jeff is preaching or Peter's preaching or Matt's preaching. I'm listening for, God, what are you saying that is to to minister to my soul today? And so God uniquely can meet us in these moments. And so I highlight that for us to posture ourselves to receive the word of God. So let me pray for us this morning. Lord, I thank you for your care for our souls. Lord, thank you that you are monitoring the levels of joy in our hearts today, the levels of trouble and fears, the levels of belief and unbelief. Lord, the things that really matter to us, much more than other categories, these things matter eternally. And Lord, you are concerned about them. So Lord, I thank you for this moment where your word ministered by your Holy Spirit can traffic into our souls Build us up, encourage us, give us revelation that changes the way we're approaching our very lives. God, thank you for this moment with us. Thank you for being here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, when we began this series on Welcome to Lakeview, I intentionally began us at the front door. And, and I know a lot of you go out of different doors in the building, but if you walk in the front door of the building, there's a plaque that faces you as you come in. And that plaque is the invitation of God. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Now, and when you go out, there's another plaque that faces you on the way out. That plaque, I'm not going to tell you about this week because we'll do that one probably next week. <clears throat> and all the guys are going to hate me because <clears throat> I'm getting more chances to say on topics. They got one shot and I'm taking a few. <clears throat> Just one of the prerogatives of being able to lead the rest of the team. Uh, but there was an issue that I felt like, you know, I wanted to preach the plaques. The plaques are very important. They're there for a reason. They're the word of God that, that speak about how this building functions. It, it, is an, it is an invitation and it is a launching pad. So the, those, those plaques are very important. And so I wanted to include those in this series. But if I was going to be cornered into sharing one thing with you that would characterize this church that, that I would hope as a pastor, you would experience over the course of time being here, um, today would, would probably be as close as I can come to summing something up into one category. And it, it would have to do with the, the grid through which you and I view our lives. And when you wake up in the morning, when events come to your doorstep, when people interact with you, when you hear the news, you, whether you realize it or not, you throw up this grid before you and you look at life and you measure life. And, you know, at this course of a relationship you're in is traveling this way. Each step it takes in that direction, whatever that looks like, each step you get out and you measure that. And you want to say, is this good or bad? Is this good or bad? Is this good or bad? And you live your whole life that way. You know, when the economic news comes to you, you throw up the grid and you go, is this good or bad? When you go to the doctor and a diagnosis comes to you, is this good or bad? Listen, you are every day of your life, pulling out the grid of belief and analyzing your life with it. And I put in your outline there the issue of the question, why? We're asking that question subconsciously or without thinking about it unintentionally and sometimes intentionally. But the question why is one of the most meaningful questions and also often one of the most painful questions you will ever ask in your life. And you will ask it a lot. Right? You started asking the question why when you were little bitty and you looked in the mirror and you said, why are my ears so big? <laughs> right? Remember that? If you, I mean, I thought I had these huge Dumbo set of ears <clears throat> when I was a kid. Why, why am I always the last one picked? Right? I mean, you start asking questions about your life. Uh, why, why, can't, why can't I get married? Why can't I seem to... Why? Why is this happening? Why am I unhealthy for so long? Why, why did my spouse leave, cheat? Why did my spouse die? Right, you're asking these questions. Now, I don't have to list every possibility in life, but you know these are realities that when life comes to us, we're asking why about life. Right? Some of us are asking in, in categories that aren't just so human suffering oriented. Some of us are asking questions about why do I get to live in America? Right? Are you following some of the stories of what's happening in the, the southern part of Africa? 
where there's an outbreak of cholera because drinking water is polluted. <laughs> drinking water? How many of you guys turn your tap water on and get all concerned? I mean, why, why is that not a concern for me? Why did I get to grow up in a country that doesn't know anything about that sort of health issue where other places in the world people are suffering in categories that I will never, ever experience in my life. Do you ever ask that question? Why? Why am I on the good end of this? You're sitting in a church today. Many of you, I won't assume that all, but many of you are saved. You do realize trafficking this planet right now are a whole bunch of people who are not. Do you stop and ask the question, God, why? Why me? Why, why do I know you? And other people walk as though they can't even see your existence. God, why? Well, what has to do with how you answer the questions of why in all these categories is, is your belief in God and what you believe about God. All right, let me just throw out a little teaser first. You know, the, the whole concept of do you believe in God? Now, most folks do, so I don't need to take a whole lot of time on this. However, our society is functionally moving away from God and away from a personal God. And so you're, you're creating atheistic philosophies, even if you acknowledge that God exists. Maybe you're a deist at best, or you just believe that there is a God out there, but you don't believe he's really involved. But if you're atheistic in your view, the philosophy that that affects affects the way you look at life. It affects the grid through which you interpret events that are going on in your life. I mean, if there is no God, there's consequences to that idea. And then you may believe that and be here this morning, but you're going to be talking to somebody who's living at some point like that's the case. Listen, if there is no God, then your life with that has no meaning. No meaning. Every, now, listen, just take the grid out and say, okay, okay, well, why am I short and somebody else is tall? Well, there is no God, so there's no reason for that. Why am I in this relationship versus that one? Why did this terrible thing happen versus that one? You take your grid out and you look at it. If there is no God, everything in your life is just a matter of chance. Just bad luck. Something happened. Who knew where that came from? There's no origin to your life. There's no creative component to it. You're an accident. You're just a grown-up amoeba that crawled out of the, the soup of evolution. That's who you are. How much meaning can that have? And, and your life has no trajectory. You realize it's aimed at nothing. No one pulled the bow on your life and aimed it at anything. There's no God. So at the end of your life, you will arrive at nothing. So here you are today, you're all stressed out about whether you can make your house payment. Who cares? <laughs> you're worried about whether you're going to get that promotion, whether your business is going to succeed. Well, who cares? If I, if I were to tell you, like, you were on a, a, a one-day pass to Disney World, this is what life is. It's a one-day pass to Disney World. Today is your last day to live. And after, after today, when the clock strikes midnight tonight, your existence is over and you'll never have another conscious thought and you'll cease to exist and everything about you will be gone. Are you still stressed out about whether you can get that job offer or not? <laughs> it doesn't matter, does it? 
well, I'm going to get it at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Well, at 12 o'clock, it'll be nothing, and it will mean nothing. Now, all I did in that illustration was push the deadline up. If you push it away from you and you say, I got 20 more years to live, so what? Your life has no meaning to it at all because it's not headed toward anything but being over. Now, if that's how life is, there is no God. Well, do you understand how our culture is turning towards relativism? Right? If there's no God out there, there's one being out there who created us all. He established the reason for our existence and made all the rules. Now, that being, if you pull him out and he doesn't exist, where are the rules? Where's the boundaries? Who on earth has the right to tell you what you should do? No one does. If there is no God, the greatest philosophy of man came from the Schlitz beer commercial. Y'all remember it? You only go around once in life, so grab all the gusto you can, my friend. Y'all remember that commercial? I got to tell you, if there's no God, that's the soundest philosophy going out there. Isn't it? I mean, you're, you got your one-day pass to Disney World. What, are you going to restrain yourself from riding the rides? <laughs> you got one shot. You better cut in line, for goodness sake. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether those people have been standing in line. Why? You don't want to cut in front of them? Why? Why? It's all about you getting every bit that you can get out of life. Don't delay. Get every bit you can. That makes sense to me. Now, what's interesting is if that's not the philosophy you go after, you have this moral majority thing happening out there. You know, how do people establish what's right and wrong? Which well, is just what most people believe is right and wrong, right? There's not a God. It's just, well, most people believe this. Now, listen, most people believing something only works when the gusto that you're after is being accepted by people. What if you don't care what people think? What if you're one of those people? Right, you know, those people, they're rebels, right? They don't, they don't give a rip what you think. I'm grabbing all the gusto I can, and if you get in the way, I'll cut your arm off. I'll, I'll, I'll steal it from you. I'll take your car. I'll shoot you for your shoes. I'll steal your wife. It doesn't matter because I'm out for gusto, and I don't care whether you like me. Now, if I care whether you like me, the gusto I'm after is making you like me, so I might abide by your rules. You understand? This is, it's just relativism at its best, but when you pull God out of the equation, that's what you're left with. Now, what if there is a God, and events in life begin to happen, and you pull the grid up, and you interpret, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the question now is, well, what's this God like? What's he like? How does he interact with your life? Is he a deist God? Kind of the creation of a Thomas Jefferson deist view that sure, there's a higher power, there's a God out there who created everything, but then he just sort of spun the universe into existence and he backed away from it and he's no longer involved with it. All right, well, if you believe that and a hurricane washes up on your shoreline and wrecks your house and destroys your city and you pull your grid out, how do you interpret that event? What just happened? Well, you know, geothermal activity and high pressures and low pressure systems and uh, the earth began to create this spinning thing that helps evaporate heat out of the cosmos and, and it wrecked our city. I mean, hey, it's just a shame, but wow, just dumb luck, huh? Wow. All right, so you, your life got wrecked by dumb luck. All right, so, okay, proceed on. What a great philosophy. 
But if you have a God who's described the way the Bible describes God, then you have a God who is imminent and involved in every aspect, every moment of our lives. He knows the number of the hairs that are on your head. He has quite an accounting system going on for some of us because it's changing daily. (laughs) Right. You know what I'm talking about, Al? You can shake your head real big, buddy, because I think he actually hired more people to help out with you. (laughs) If God is involved in every detail of our lives and a hurricane washes up on your shoreline, now you pull the grid out and you interpret that event. So you interpret that very differently, don't you? See, so what we believe in this category today that we talk about, and I titled this message, For the Glory of God, is an everyday issue for us. It is how we see life. And it's going to enable us either to walk with God or to combat his will in our life. And so I think this is a very important thing for us to understand accurately. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, in this scenario... Here's Jesus walking as he often did from place to place with his disciples, and life is teaching lessons. And and these guys walk by, and they see a man who is blind from birth. That's the condition of this man's life. And they turn to Jesus, and they ask him the why question, right? They are trying to interpret this event through their grid of understanding, and they're saying, Jesus, why? Why? Why is this man's condition the way it is? And I think this man's condition would give any of us a sense of great sympathy, concern. This man is born blind with all the ramifications that that has meant for his life, all that he has missed out on, all that he has suffered, all the difficulties that have come into his life because of that condition. The question gets asked, why? Now, if you're a deist or if you're an atheist and you pull your grid out to answer that, how do you answer that question? Well, biological accident, you know, that's, that's just what happens, you know, this, there's this thing called disease and things don't always work and just, again, just dumb luck for this guy that he was born blind. I mean, heck, you know, if you're a really good atheist and you believe in evolution, you know, it's just Mother Nature's way of cleaning out the weakness of the race. You know, it's the survival of the fittest. And, you know, there's not a lot of blind folks because eventually, you know, those folks kind of just go away. You know, life eats them up and the strong survive. Listen, you know, it's interesting. Evolution 
is an interesting little animal to have as a philosophy. It, it doesn't breed it any, any sense of compassion or care for another because it, it is actually functioning to rid us of the stuff that's bad. You know, the, the weak stuff's supposed to die off and the strong are supposed to survive. You know, you, you realize that is the philosophy of Nazi Germany. You know, if you're really a strong evolutionist, then you have a hard time arguing with, with uh, Hitler on how he viewed life. See, philosophies mean something. But what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't answer that question that way. When he gets asked the question of, Jesus, why? Why is this guy's life this way? And he pulls out the grid of understanding and applies it to this life. He pulls God into the situation and says, well, because God has a purpose for this man's life and for his life being in this condition. God has a reason for this. God is superintending his creation. It was important that his life be this way. That's what Jesus' answer is. Now, here in this moment, let's, let's not distance ourselves too much from this guy. Let's, let's insert ourselves into this moment. Okay? We're, not, we're not here born blind. But we're here asking why questions about our lives. Right? Whether it's the ones I mentioned earlier or at some point in your life you were a young girl growing up in a very materialistic and appearance-oriented culture and you were asking why am I not as pretty as the airbrushed girl on the page here? Why? You grow up and you become a young man and maybe you're leading a family in your life and, and you're asking why why am I not as successful as this guy or that guy? I'm going through some hard times. Why, why am I having such a hard time? I mean, you're going to ask some questions about your life. Why have I been sick for so long? Why, why isn't my marriage like, like that couple over there, or that couple? Why isn't my marriage like that? So you're asking these questions, and Jesus is answering them. Now, interesting in this, the disciples assume that, that this exists, this, this situation exists because either this man sinned and brought this about or his parents sinned and brought this about. But, but somehow, somebody sinned here and created a negative situation. That's how negative situations get created. Somebody sinned. Now, let me just say this real quickly. I don't believe Jesus' intention in answering this question is to destroy the concept that sin does create negative circumstances because it does. This situation in a general sense only exists because of the fall of man because Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden and brought sin into creation and this man is blind because sin is in the creation. But they're asking something more specific. They're asking for a causative effect. Is this man blind because somehow he sinned or he was born blind, so maybe it was his parents who sinned. And they had beliefs that actually supported this question. Now listen, remember, Jesus confronted people in sin. You know, and after forgiving one woman, he says, Now go and sin no more, so that nothing worse may befall you. So this is not Jesus saying, no, there's never a relationship between somebody's experience in life and their sin. But it's interesting, he doesn't answer this question that way. And, and, if, and today, if you're tempted 
when your situation in life, and you look at it through your grid and you say, this is a negative situation. My condition here is a bad one. You're going to be tempted in two directions. You're going to be tempted towards guilt to blame yourself. I did this. My life is this way because I did this. Or you're going to be tempted in the other direction to blame someone else. I'm, I'm this way because of others. And, and you see this everywhere in our society. People functioning with a low-grade sense of guilt about their lives or people who are victimized by life. I am this way, my goodness. You know, all the talk shows in the afternoon would go away if we removed victimization as an acceptable response to life. Right? I don't know what Maury and Oprah and all those guys would have to talk about if they couldn't blame people. My life stinks, and it's in this condition because of my parents. My goodness, psychology taught us that a good while ago, right? It's because of the way you were raised. If you had just been raised, with the timing of when the diapers were being changed and the things that were being said to you, and oh my goodness, you were spanked, you're scarred forever. Uh, And it's like we created this sense of, I just want to blame someone else. I I don't want to be responsible for me. Everybody else did the wrong thing. That's that's why, and I'm, I'm bitter and mad at everybody now. Boy, that's a great philosophy. That takes you real far. When you look at your life, if you look through that grid, see some of these things either produce condemnation or guilt or they produce, produce resentment and unforgiveness. But Jesus' answer produces neither. He says it's not because of his sin and it's not because of his parents' sin. This situation exists for the glory of God to be on display. That's why this situation exists exists. Now listen, I could go on for a long time showing you in scripture that that is the reason why all situations in scripture exist. They exist for the glory of God. That's why they exist. Good, bad, struggling, rewarding, challenging, fun. They exist for the glory of God. I just want to run through a couple of scriptures here so you can see the flavor of this all throughout scripture. Jesus comes to this same issue again in John chapter 11, verse 4. It says, but when Jesus heard it, what he heard was that Lazarus is sick to the point of death. His good friend Lazarus is sick. When he heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Now, ultimately, it did not. But Lazarus is going to die, and Jesus is going to have to bring him back from the dead. But he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, Lazarus, you are sick to the point of death and you are asking the question, why? And you pick your grid up to interpret your experience in life. Why am I like this? And Jesus' answer is, this situation in your life exists for the glory of God. The man born blind from birth, that situation exists for the glory of God to be displayed. It was, in God's perfection, a necessary component of human existence for God's glory to be on display. 
1 Peter 4.11 says, in order that in everything God may be glorified. In, in some things, in a few things, in the things that are done because people are praying and agreeing with God and doing what they're supposed to do, raising their kids all for the right ways and relating to each other all the right ways. Is, is, is that for the glory of God? But, you know, the ones where we fumbled and, and screwed up, and hurt somebody else, and neglected something, and were selfish for 10 years in a row, in those things, is that for the glory of God? Well, this says in order that in everything, everything in our lives, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ is, he's the redeemer. He's the one who resurrects from the dead. Well, if you don't have anything dead, You don't have any reason for resurrection either, do you? See, through Jesus, Jesus has this ability to step into God's creation and reverse everything and bring something out of something that was terrible, bring something glorious. That's why it's very important that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever it is that you're thinking about doing in your life, think carefully as to what your motive is in it. The Bible calls us to get into God's plan where God says everything that exists exists for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name... And whom I have created for my glory. You want a purpose statement in life? There's a purpose statement in life. Why do we exist? Why the creation? Why did God make anything? Why did God make a planet that you and I are standing on? Why did God fill it with plants? Why did he put us on it? Why are we walking around and relating to people the way that we are and pursuing the things that we pursue? All whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. God speaks of his servants in Isaiah 49, 3. He says, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. And this is the great purpose statement of why any of us exist. In order to show the glory of God. Right, and that, that word glory, I don't want to go into that. It's a kind of a big word, but we use it a lot. It's the Hebrew word chabad. It's, it's what God is made of. It's the characteristics of who God is. Right? In my engineering background, I would liken it to the word density. You guys know what density is? Right? If I took a baseball up here made of styrofoam, and I took a baseball made of lead, same size, we could paint them the way they look very much the same, but one of them would be much, much heavier than the other one because its density is greater than the styrofoam. It's made of something well, God is made of something, if you will. God, there's characteristics in God that make up his glory, and God wants to put them on display. There's the love of God that God wants to go on display. There's the holiness of God that God seeks to put on display. There's the righteousness of God God seeks to put it on display. There's the kindness of God and the compassion of God and the patience of God. God seeks to put them on display. He creates things to put them on display. Why does this situation exist? Jesus, why? So that the works of God might be displayed. 
in him. Look at what J.C. Ryle says in his commentary on John. He says, A deep and instructive principle lies in these words. They surely throw some light on the great question, the origin of evil. God has thought fit to allow evil to exist in order that he may have a platform for showing his mercy, grace, and compassion. If man had never fallen, there would have been no opportunity of showing divine mercy. But by permitting evil, mysterious as it seems, God's works of grace, mercy, and wisdom in saving sinners have been wonderfully manifested to all his creatures. Listen, one of the things that we sung about this morning the most and the hardest was the grace and mercy of God that has come to us. It's an aspect of God that is revealed to us that we embrace and we're amazed by and we're drawn to and we're affected by. If man had never fallen, that aspect of God would have never been known. And in God's perfect planning, that was unacceptable to him. In a strange way, sin coming into his creation, which we think, oh, wasn't that the ultimate goof? Oh, my goodness. God's got to be reeling. I mean, when Adam is about to blow it in the garden, God has got to be pulling his hair out and running around heaven going, this is the one thing I feared. I I hope this wouldn't happen. No. It was God preparing to show his glory. God knew in that moment, I'm about to put my mercy on display. We're moments away from my glory coming in a new way to be seen in my creation. See, God sees sin very differently than we see it. He's not reeling. He's not terrified. Now, I got to say this, and I don't know if I put this in your outline or not, but let me say this. Apparently, in the perfection of God, the glory of God is of greater priority and benefit than the comfort of man. Can I say that again? Apparently, in the perfection of God, the glory of God is of greater priority and benefit than the comfort of man. Now, you and I look at this guy sitting on the side of the road begging blind from birth, and we pick up our grid and we go, there's no way this can be good. Right? And, and some of us are accusing God and going, how could a good God allow things like that to occur? Right? We don't see this as good. But yet God says this exists so that God's glory could be displayed through it. God saw it as more valuable, and can I say this? More beneficial to that man that his life would show forth the glory of God than that he would be able to see from the moment he was born. See, in God's value system, that was more valuable to that man than his eyesight. Now, the problem in this equation here is what? I don't share God's opinion. I want to argue with God and say, God, that might be cool for you, but I think it'd be more cool if that dude could just see. How on earth can it be better? Well, here's a helpful quote from Mr. Timothy Keller. He says, tucked, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely that if evil appears pointless to me, 
then it must be pointless. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well, then there can't be any. Right? Isn't that what we're saying? I look on this situation, the guy is blind from birth, and I search my vast amount of knowledge. And I can't come up with a reason why that can be good, and I conclude God's not good either. Wow, you're impressed with yourself, aren't you? You sure you did enough research on that before you concluded it is so? All right, let me just humble all of us for a second. How many of us have ever bothered to try and play along with, are you smarter than a fifth grader? Let me just see your hands. Right? I mean, two, three questions into the show, and you're an idiot, aren't you? I and mean, it's like, that little snotty kid knew the answer to that? I mean, I know that they're getting to cheat. I know they are. <laughs> I'm not smarter than a fifth grader, but I'm going to take God to task on what he calls good. My vast fourth grade level of knowledge, apparently. <laughs> God, we need to talk. I mean, I'm finished fourth grade now. Let's talk. Because you got some ideas about what's good. I don't think they're real sound. We need to talk. And all the knowledge of the universe that exists that we don't own any by comparison to God. God looks at a situation and says, that's good because it's for my glory. And we argue with God. See, this is an argument that if you and I don't settle this issue, you will argue with God on a daily basis. You will lift the grid of your views up about life and you will apply them to everyday events in your life and you will argue with God. And this is why I hope if you're here for any length of time, you will eventually see that in the Bible, all that God does, he does for his glory. If you don't see that and you continue to listen to too many, I'm not gonna mention particulars, too many guys on TV that, that all they seem to be telling you is God is a candy man. God exists to fulfill your fourth grade definition of a good life. Ask him for your good life now and you can have that fourth grade version of, wow, isn't that cool? Okay, God is functioning beyond graduate level in what a good life really is. Challenge for us is to get in agreement with God and to see God as God, to appreciate that what he says is good is really good, even if it is difficult and challenging to me. Put this question in your outline. Does your theology seek to rescue God from doing things that are not man-centered and in the limited scope of man's insights, beneficial? Do you have a theology about God that seeks to rescue him? See, this guy's born blind. His circumstance in life has been hard and difficult. Does your theology seek to make God not responsible in any way? God would never. Why is that? Because I can't see how that's beneficial. So that can't be good. So somehow God who is good, that's not the God I love. The God I love is a God of love. Well, might it be that God loves in ways that you don't understand? And if you could understand them, you would say, wow, now that, now that is the best way to love. See, there, there is this view, it's in churches today, it's all over the world, but it's, I want to say it again, it's in churches today. 
that God is a very man-centered God. We have reversed the created order, and now we believe that God exists for us. Rather than the God who created everything, we exist for him. Right? Remember, Paul kind of takes this thinking to task in Romans, and he says, you know, does not the potter have the right over the clay to make whatever he wants from it? You who are complaining. And if he wants to take from the same lump of clay, put part of it over here and make a vessel of honor, and we go, oh, that's good. And then over here, make another one of dishonor. Doesn't he have the right to do that? We're just clay. We don't have the posture to argue with God about how he brings good into our lives. And it takes us years to catch up with his definition. John Piper says, I press on this because I believe that if we are God-centered, simply because we consciously or unconsciously believe God is man-centered, then our God-centeredness is in reality man-centeredness. Teaching God's God-centeredness forces this issue of whether we treasure God because of his excellence or mainly because he endorses ours. Oh, God, you are great. And God, I'll worship you this morning because the tax return was bigger than I thought. Woo! God, you really are great, and I know it now. That's not the verse that, that he quoted. That's not what Habakkuk says. Habakkuk says, you know, if your crops dry up and there's no return and no benefit in your life through the, through the avenues that you have called good, God is still God. And he's still worthy. And he's still good. And I worship him because of who he is, not because of how his dealings play out in my life on a daily basis. Listen, this is, this is kind of a shocking revelation. God's God-centeredness. God doing things for his glory. Listen, you know, when I first started to hear this, Peter had, had begun to read a guy named T. Austin Sparks back in the early 90s, I think it was. And he'd come and talk to me about these thoughts, about God's main concern is for God. And I had to argue with him. That sounded so weird, selfish on God's part. No, no. God's main concern is, is to love us and me. That's God's main, God is loving. And he would argue back with me. No, no, God's, God's main concern is for himself, for his glory. Listen, it took me a while to conclude that, wow, you're right. This is all over the Bible. And it took me a little while longer to realize how loving it was of God to do exactly that. For God to be so for something that is secondary to that which is most important would be absolutely backwards. And it'd be the biggest mistake God could ever make. And it would not be loving to any one of us. God must be for his own glory being seen more than anything else because there's nothing more worthy than his own glory being seen in our lives. And if God chooses to display that glory in our lives, what a privilege. We didn't have to exist at all. To have the privilege of existing in order to be the canvas upon which God paints. But I don't like the color red. <laughs> He's using red in my life. Here he goes again. We had red 10 years ago and here he goes again. I mean, it's red. He's painting me in red. I don't like that. And listen, there's an artist at work. What a privilege for that artist to put himself on display through us as objects of his mercy 
and his kindness and his compassion in our lives. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things are for him. Listen, the chair you're seated in today, it would be inappropriate for it to complain about it being your particular behind that's seated in it today. (laughs) That wasn't what it wanted. It was praying here last night that it'd be somebody else seated on it today. You're just a chair. (laughs) There's a realm in which there's a humility for God's creation to stand before the creator and be impressed with him and to allow him to be God in ways that defy some of our definition. And this is very hard in a culture that's teaching me every day to orient the universe around me. I mean, I am a gravitational pole trying to get everything to revolve and orient around me. Now, here's the temptation. Look in your outline. Do I orient all things around me and then bring my interpretation of whether these events are good or bad. Right, is that the grid that I'm waking up in the morning with? An event, a phone call comes, an event happens, a piece of mail comes to me, and I throw up my grid and I say, how does this orient around me? How does this take into account my interests, my pursuits, my goals, my aims, the things that I want to avoid in life? How does this do that? Huh? Doesn't look good. That's bad. And this is a, you're a bad person. That's a bad relationship. This is a bad event. It's bad timing. Is, is that how you're interpreting life? I mean, listen, it's very tempting, isn't it? We look through the grid of how does this further my interest, my temporary fourth grade interest? How does this further me? How does this protect me? How does this keep me from discomfort? How does this keep me in the air conditioned zone? And if it doesn't do that, that's a bad thing. But, but, but what if it's for the glory of God? What if it's so that the, the works of God could go on display? Right? I mean, if, if you're characters in the Bible, if you're Joseph in the Old Testament, how do you throw up a grid and interpret your life? Right? You remember Joseph? Remember his events of his life? Abandoned by his family, treated strangely by his father, provoking his other brothers sold into slavery, falsely accused, living his life in a dungeon, probably in ill health, and he's got to put up a grid and wonder, okay, good or bad? Now, it takes a little while for this story to unfold until finally Joseph gets to the place where he sees, wow, I had no idea what was going on. And I've used this illustration before because Joseph, his life benefited you and me. More important than Joseph's comfort was the lineage of his family to preserve the Messiah who would come and die in our place and save the world. Now, what's more important? Joseph's comfort or the purpose of God's glorious plan being preserved? Remember Job's situation. I mean, no one has suffered like Job. What a life. He's blessed. He's abundantly wealthy. And he loses his business. He loses his stocks. Then he loses his family. And then he goes into his own health. And he loses that. 
Now, this guy's got some questions, right? You throw up your grip. Why? Why is this happening in my life? Now, what's interesting, if you parade through all of Job and you get to the end, in the end, God reveals his glory to Job. And what's interesting is that's enough. Job sees the glory of God, and neither Joseph nor Job ever accused God of having done anything wrong. Now, listen, if you're walking down this path with Job... I mean, come on, let's be real. Your friend has lost everything and you are watching him deteriorate physically. Aren't you wondering, where the hell is God? You've wondered this. Don't act like this is church and you can't say hell in it. (laughs) It's in the Bible. I mean, you've done that, haven't you? You've watched somebody's life, didn't quite have exactly the same characteristics as Job's, but it was, it was losing and suffering and difficulty. And you lifted your grid up and questioned God, right? Job doesn't question God. Now, take some time for God's glory to be revealed in such a way that man goes, wow, that was the right thing. That's how Joseph responds. His brothers fall to pieces, and he's comforting them. He says, no, no, you, I know you did this, but God did this. He sent me ahead of you in order to preserve life. It's good. It's good that I'm here. It's okay. All that I've gone through, it was for a more glorious cause in my life. Somebody told me that uh, Judy Bourgeois shared quite a testimony at the Alpha Retreat. Judy and Donnie lost their son a few years ago, tragically. And for Judy to stand and, and, and give a testimony that says, I would not go back and change those events because they led me to Christ. See, sometimes it takes you a little while to go far enough into the storyline to turn and say, God, you have done the right thing. This really was good. I'm grateful. And Matthew Henry says, the sentences in the book of Providence are sometimes long, and you must read a great way before you understand the meaning. Listen, this, this, this informs everything about our lives. Every aspect of our lives is being met by this grid. Everything we understand life to be, what's good, what's bad, is being met by how we're interpreting something and whether or not we interpret it as for the glory of God. Now, I ask this question and I ask it in counseling quite often. Why are you about to do whatever it is that you're about to do? Why? Why are you making that decision about whether to pursue this or to pursue that? To avoid this situation or to embrace it? To stay in that relationship or to run from it? Why, why are you doing that? Now, the knee-jerk response from most of us, whether we have analyzed why we do it, it's typically because we want to stay in the air conditioning. I want to stay where it's comfortable. I want to stay where it's safe. Why am I doing that? Because I'm trying to avoid the pain that's involved in that. I don't want that pain. I I would rather have it easier, less difficult, less painful. I'm trying to preserve myself, man. That's why I'm doing that. That's why I'm about to take these actions. Okay, in that moment, what you need to be asking is, God, what can I do right now for the glory of God? 
Because ultimately, your joy and your fulfillment and your benefit in that situation is not in self-preservation. It is in running towards the glory of God with all your might. Because that's why you were created. God created you for his glory. If God's glory is to go on display in your life, then run towards it. Don't run away from it. Every day of your life, you have the opportunity to run towards the display of the glory of God or run away from it. I mean, the, the first century Christians didn't run from martyrdom. They had adopted a belief in their life that was going to cost them everything. Well, why not just twist what your words are a little bit? Why not just kind of go along with some of what's being demanded of you? You know, recant on what you believe. Oh, okay, God will understand. Now, they put their lives on the line and they died a martyr's death for the glory of God. And they made such a statement about the depth of the convictions of the God who was worthy of their lives that it sent a reverberation throughout the earth, finally finding its way to where you and I live a long way away. Why? Why should we embrace and endure suffering? Whatever form it comes in. For the glory of God. If God should so choose to be glorified in that. Why should we work at a difficult marriage rather than seeking an easier one? Listen, that's the, that's the message of the society that you live in because it's a gusto message. You only go around once in life, dude. Grab all the gusto. And if, she, and if she ain't the one to grab the gusto with, man, move on. You only got one shot at this life. Don't waste your time in a relationship that's nothing but a pain. Hmm. Really? Here's an interesting thought. Tim Keller says, your views of what is right will be based on what you think the purpose of marriage is. If you think marriage is mainly for the rearing of children to benefit the whole society, then you will make divorce very difficult. If you think the purpose of marriage is more primarily for the happiness and emotional fulfillment of the adults who enter it, you will make divorce much easier. And your approach to be divorced will be based on those things as well. The divorce laws you think work will depend on prior beliefs about what it means to be happy and fully human. Okay, now he's arguing the philosophy of how we get our laws today. Now let me add to this quote. What if you believe that your marriage exists for the glory of God? The glory of a redeeming God. The glory of a God who steps into things that are dead and resurrects them. The glory of a, of a restorative God who takes a universe that's in rebellion against him and turns the affections of their hearts back to worship him. What if you believe in that God? And you're in a marriage that kind of looks like the relationship that man has with God. Right? A lot of bickering, a lot of complaining, a lot of misery going on here. How does God deal in that moment? Might God want to put on display in your very dysfunctional marriage his glory and redemptive power that the Holy Spirit is greater than you are and your spouse? Might God want to do that? Listen, if you're not armed with this and you walk out and you watch two commercials today, it's going to be a grab all the gusto and she's in the way of my gusto and she's expendable. Because... I'm not interested in the glory of God. I'm interested in the air conditioning. 
I learned that in fourth grade. (laughs) If Jesus had believed that personal comfort was more fulfilling than God's glory in suffering, then no one would know the glory of God's redemption. No one. If Jesus had sat in heaven and then presented with the thought of empty yourself, take the form of a man, and put yourself in the crosshairs of sin and and receive not only the rejection of the people that you've created, but the wrath of God as only Jesus could have known what that must be like. If Jesus had thought for a moment, "Mm, that doesn't sound comfortable. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna vie for self-preservation and comfort. You understand, right? Not a one of us would know anything about redemption. But when Jesus says this in John 12, he says, now is my soul troubled. That's quite a statement. This is a son of God with a troubled soul. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, what what am I, what am I crazy to avoid this path because it's uncomfortable? Oh, it's more than uncomfortable. It's the fury of God. It's the wrath of God. It's you drinking a cup that no one has ever, ever drunk. It's a path that looks miserable. What, am I going to say another path? I really have another path. I don't want that path. No, I came to this path for a purpose. What was the purpose? To glorify the name of the Father. And what incredible pain awaited him in the next step. let's, let's Let's not conclude the story too quickly. The next steps were horrific. But for the joy set before him. Joy? Really? Yeah. Fulfilling the purpose that God had. See, God has a purpose. That's a grid that I need to look at my life through. Matt, go ahead and and come. Look at this last quote from John Piper. He puts it in the realm of marriage. I've used this before. Why marriage? Why is there marriage? Why does marriage exist? Why do we live in marriages? This means that my topic is part of a larger question. Well, why does anything exist? Why do you exist? Why does sex exist? Why do earth and sun and moon and stars exist? Why do animals and plants and oceans and mountains and atoms and galaxies exist? The answer to all these questions, including the one about marriage, is all of them exist to and for the glory of God. That is, they exist to magnify the truth and worth and beauty and greatness of God. God is unimaginably great and infinitely valuable and unsurpassed in beauty. Everything that exists is meant to magnify that reality. Everything. Every hair falling out of your head is meant to magnify that reality. So here's the challenge for us this morning. Life is going to serve itself up to us. It is today. 
fun times, difficult times, rewarding times, hard times, miraculous moments, mundane moments that all exist for the glory of God. Now, it's not my intention this morning to to present a message that to, to some ears may seem cold. It, it doesn't seem caring enough, Keith. That, that sounds, it sounds like God is somewhat kind of selfish in his dealings. And, and I, I understand that. I really do. I mean, I told you, I, I wrestled with some of these elements for a pretty good while. Maybe this message is intended to help you wrestle with some of those views. But what I, what I can tell you is this. Far from being a discouraging word, this should be a word that brings incredible faith and hope into my life because it puts me on page with God. It lets me know what God is doing. It lets me know that he's in charge. It lets me know that if I was born blind, that God was up to something. What news? It lets me know that if I'm physically ill today, like Lazarus was, to the point of death. This illness is for the glory of God because everything exists for God to touch it and to show forth his glory through it. What a privilege. And as the Son of Man said, what a joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross now listen, don't just look at the pain of your circumstance. See that God created you to magnify his glory through your circumstances in your life. And so no matter how difficult they are, the joy that is set before you is that you, a creature, are about to display the glory of God. Oh, are, you, are you wanting anything more than you want that? I don't, I don't want the air conditioning if the sweat displays the glory of God in a way that the air conditioning does not. To this, this makes all the difference in how you and I live our lives on a daily basis that we would conclude everything, everything, everything is for the glory of God. Let's stand up together. Lord, we began this message with the question, why? A very familiar question to us, Lord, often a very loud question, one that we shout at life's circumstances. Lord, what I pray you would do today is you would turn up the volume on your answer that it would not be a whisper hidden on the pages of Scripture that we read past too quickly. God, I pray that you would put us in the category with Job and Joseph and the Son of God himself to read the long sentence of providence and to become more and more convinced that this, this is for the glory of God. And Lord, I would not ask you 
to diminish the opportunity for your glory in my life. Lord, I don't want to pray those kind of prayers. I don't want to crave and hunger after a life that doesn't have difficulty and challenge in it because it brings me comfort, but it doesn't bring you glory. God, I'm not interested in that kind of exchange. So Lord, what I want to be able to pray this morning, what I want to be able to look at my life through the grid of my understanding is to be able to say, Lord, in everything in my life, be glorified, Lord. Whether I eat or drink or succeed or fail or am healed or die, in all, be glorified, God. Be magnified. Let your creation and the angels and everything that you've created see your worth. Let it see your power. Let it see holiness and righteousness. Let it see the one for whom we were all created. Oh God, lift our gaze from what is so temporary in our lives. God, let us fall in love with that which is eternal and worthy. God, we want to find that which is of most value and not be begging you that which is of least value or cheap. And we want you to receive glory through our lives. So Lord, would you find your way right now into our questions of why and bring this revelation of truth into those questions as we sing this song, Lord. When the music fades All is stripped away And I simply come Longing just to bring Something that's of one That will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made When it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus King of Endless Worth you deserve though I'm weak and poor though I'm weak and poor all I have is your 
every single breath I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required search much deeper Lord you search much deeper within through the way things It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me. As if you should do things my way, you alone are God, and I surrender to yours. Sing that again, it's all about you. It's all about you. Jesus, and all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. For your glory and your fame, it's not about me. As if you should do things my way, you alone are God, and I surrender. You alone, you alone are God, and I surrender. You alone, you I surrender to your way. Lord, help us to surrender to your way, to surrender our thoughts to your definition of good, your definition of what is lovely and beneficial. Lord, help us to see what you had in mind when you talked about a people who prosper. Or the one who meditates on your word and everything that he does prospers. Lord, what did you think when you were writing that? When you were addressing us with your truth, God, may your word sink deeply in our hearts and create new definitions for what abundant life means help us to embrace joyfully with humility the wisdom that you have and the purposes that you've ordained knowing that you or you intend to bless us and you're a God who is gracious and kind or you intend to write a story for us that is greater and more glorious than we could ever write for ourselves help us to humbly embrace that for the glory of your name Amen.
Amen. God bless you.